Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'm your host, Luke Prague. When I finally lost all my faith in Christianity in January 2008, one of my biggest concerns was morality. As a Christian, my entire ethical system was bound up in what I thought God had said was good. If God didn't exist, that meant I had no idea what was right and wrong. I'd already spent 21 years following a false ethical system, and I was really worried that maybe I had made a net negative impact on the world. Like, maybe I had made the world worse because I was following a false ethical system. Or maybe I'd gotten lucky and not done much harm, but I wanted to find out. So I started to study moral theories, and I was especially interested in the theories which said that moral values really exist, that certain things are objectively right or wrong. The problem was that all the arguments I heard for the existence of moral values were really bad. In fact, they were often the exact same arguments that are given for the existence of God. Uh, I looked up every theory of moral realism that I could find, and they were all just hopelessly implausible. So I settled for error theory, the idea that moral language tries to make fact claims, but as it happens, all such claims are false because they refer to things that don't exist, namely moral values. So I had come to the same conclusion about morality as I had about theology. Both morality and theology made claims of fact, but all their claims were false because they referred to things that don't exist, God and moral values. So I had moved on, I was studying other topics, and I would basically given up on the existence of moral facts. Then, a few months ago, I came across the blog Atheist Ethicist, written by Alonzo Fife. I only had a vague idea of what he was writing about, but I asked to interview him for my podcast. He started talking to me about his theory of how moral values really exist, but his arguments made complete simple sense, and they referred only to things that really exist. Uh, I was shocked. I, did, I couldn't believe it. Um, it was as if I had finally come across a solid argument for the existence of God after hearing 10,000 really bad ones. It was just completely shocking. But there it was, a plausible theory of moral realism. So I bought Alonzo's book and asked him a bunch of questions, and so far every objection I had raised either turned out to be a misunderstanding of the theory, or else it had been persuasively answered by Alonzo. So I wrote a book about the theory called What is Morality? And now I'm getting all kinds of questions about desire utilitarianism. And I've tried my best to answer them in the comments on my blog and an email, but I asked Alonzo to talk to me again so I could ask him your questions about desire utilitarianism. So here it is, my second interview with Alonzo Fife about his ethical theory, desire utilitarianism. It's pretty densely packed with ideas, so you might want to listen to it twice. Enjoy. Well, thanks for joining me again, Alonzo. Well, I think where I'd like to start is, it seems to me there are at least two criteria for a good moral theory. The first one would be ontological, you know, does the theory make true claims about things that actually exist? Because uh, if it doesn't pass that test, then the theory is simply false. Uh, the other criteria would be 
uh, semantic in that we have to be talking about morality uh, for it to be a moral theory. So, for example, we might have a good economic theory about what kinds of policies tend to produce equality or tend to produce um, wealth or tend to produce um, world power or something like that. And they might be perfect theories that line up with the facts perfectly, but they may not be having anything to do with morality. Um, so <clears throat> a good moral theory has to be both true and it also, I would, it seems to me, it has to line up with what we generally mean by moral terms, uh, or else it's just a theory about something else, like economics or aesthetics or something. Uh, so I wonder, with that framework in mind, could you give us just a brief review of what desire utilitarianism claims and how it fulfills those two criteria? Well, okay. I, uh, I agree that the uh, ontological uh, side of that is, is quite necessary. If you're going to talk about, uh, if you're going to talk about things, better be things that are real. Um, I don't think the semantic side of it has all that much weight. And it's true that you need, you use the phrase generally, or this, the term generally. It's true that you need to uh, be generally talking about what most people have in mind when they use a particular term. So if you bring up a theory of gravity, you better have something to do with things going down. But it doesn't need to be uh, to capture precisely everything that any everybody has ever said about things going down. Or if you have a theory of planet formation, um, astronomers are having a dispute over what the, the meaning of the word planet is going to be. That's not going to really uh, destroy a theory of planet formation if you're generally talking about uh, planets. So I think that a theory of uh, a moral theory has to generally capture what we mean when we use moral terms, but we don't have to worry about um, every single precise nuance that every different person has. Yeah, I would think that would be I would think that would be impossible anyway to capture what everybody has meant that people have meant contradictory things by the term by using moral terms. Right, and we all, ultimately we all we all learn a slightly different language because we all have a different language history. So not no two of us actually use all of our terms exactly the same. So you can't actually capture what every new nuance of every individual person's meaning. It's just that's just not going to be possible. Um, in saying that this is a, a, a moral theory, it's, I'm saying that it captures generally what most people talk about when they use moral terms. It captures generally how moral terms are used. Terms like, that's wrong, that's evil, you shouldn't do something like that. And also moral concepts like an excuse. What is an excuse? What is um, the, the legal moral term mens rea or guilty mind? The, the theory has an account of that. Um, there are generally three different categories of, of moral speech. There is a, a moral obligation. There is um, a non-obligatory permission, things that you may do but don't have to do. And there are moral prohibitions. The theory accounts for all three categories of, of moral claims. Um, it accounts for um, the types of things that people might say to rationalize something that's wrong. Um, for example, they may claim that um, the person had cons or the person had consented when the person actually hadn't consented. 
but the, the various types of claims that, that people can make are accounted for by the theory or, or, or would be accounted for by a good moral theory. And I think that desire utilitarianism does a pretty good job of going through the whole list of, uh, of what's called morality and coming up with an explanation for each part of it. And that's why I like it. Well, let's hear it then. Let's uh, give a quick overview of what desire utilitarianism claims about morality. Okay, could we, wouldn't it be possible to do a quick overview of all of those various aspects of morality that I just mentioned? But basically, um, morality um, is a subset of a theory of value. So first you've got to know what value is, and then you've got to break value down into its different types. Morality is going to be a species of the genus value. And value, I argue, is concerned with reasons for action. To say that you should do something is to say that there is a reason for action that exists that suggests doing that thing. So we need to know, look at for reasons for action that exist and find out if there actually are any and if they recommend the action in question. Now, one of the things that desire utilitarianism holds, the desire aspect, is that desires are the only reasons for action that exist. And the best way to understand that is to understand what's being thrown out as doesn't exist. Intrinsic values do not exist. Commandments from a god do not exist because a god doesn't exist. Uh, categorical imperatives, which is what Kant, Immanuel Kant, German philosopher of the 1700s, proclaimed to be the, the root of morality. Categorical imperatives don't exist. There is no social contract. Um, there is no impartial observer. Um, all of those types of entities, there are no group of people sitting around a table behind a veil of ignorance um, negotiating terms. There's real people in the real world facing real world situations. So all of those things are thrown out. But what does exist are desires. Desires themselves are brain states. They're um, a statement about how the brain is organized in order to control intentional actions. All intentional actions are grounded on beliefs and desires. If you ask anybody, why did you do that, they're going to give you an answer that expresses a set of desires and a set of beliefs that are relevant to that, those desires. Why did you go to the store? Because I was hungry. And they might not state it, but a part of that explanation is, I was hungry, that was the desire, I wanted something to eat, and I believe there was something to eat at the store. It sounds like a person by a very reasonable belief, and therefore that's why it doesn't have to be stated, it's just too obvious. All, all, all value ultimately gets grounded on desires, but desires are real. So you're talking about something that's part of the real world. Well, I think that a lot of my readers would object there that you've said that there are reasons why people do things. People act because they desire something and they have beliefs that a certain thing will fulfill that desire. And so that's a description, that's a factual description of something that exists in the universe. Mm -hmm. But it almost like it almost seems like when talking about morality, we're we want to be talking about a reason for action why we should do something, not just a reason for action why we do do something. So how does desire utilitarianism bridge that gap from what exists and the reasons why we do things to value and reasons why we should or ought to do things? 
Okay, the uh, desire of utilitarianism holds that there really isn't a gap. There are certain types of statements that are both at the same time descriptive, they describe the universe, and they're prescriptive. And I hope that's actually necessary if you're going to be, if you're going to hold any type of moral realism. There has to be a way of saying that something should be the case that is descriptive, true of the real world, and prescriptive, a recommendation for actions. So what desire utilitarianism starts with is that the statement, you should do X, is the same thing as there are reasons for action for you to do X. The should statement describes the, the prescriptive element. The statement, there are reasons for action, is a descriptive statement. But it's a descriptive statement that prescribes an action. It does this, it does both at the same time. It describes that the fact that there are there's a relationship between reasons for action and the and the action in question, and it prescribes the action based on the reasons for action that exists. So there you've simply defined prescription basically as reasons why we do things, or as being almost identical to reasons why we should do things. I wonder if you might give a justification for that. Um, well, like I said, when it comes to definitions, what we're really interested in is does it uh, generally capture the way people use a term? And I think it's easy to demonstrate that this does. If I say um, uh, you should save for your retirement, the normal response is to ask why. And the only type of uh, answer to that type of why question, the way anybody uses the term, you, I would challenge you to find find an exception to this, but the answer to the right question is to provide a reason for action. I've said that you should say for your retirement, you've asked me why, now my job is to give you a reason why, a reason for action why you should say for your retirement. And so that, that matches pretty much the way that that term is exclusively used. Now people might have different ideas of what a reason for action is, but a reason for action is always required in answer to a why question that comes at the tail end of a prescription. I think it seems to a lot of people that what you're doing there is kind of an equivocation. When you ask people why should we do this, they give a reason for action as in a reason for action why they ought to do something, um, whereas what you're providing with them with is a reason for action why people do do things. Isn't there still a gap there? No, the answer isn't uh, why somebody does do something because the person might actually do something else. Um, you should look both ways before you cross the street. I can give you reasons for action why you should do that. And those are reasons for action that exist. You don't want to be run over by a car. But it's still open to you to walk across the street um, without without looking for traffic. So and it isn't that I'm not predicting that you are going to look both ways before you cross the street. I am prescribing that particular action, but it, but uh, and but not predicting it. Therefore, I'm not using that as a statement of what you will do. I'm using that as a statement of what you should do. But what I'm calling on as a statement of what you should do is a reason for action that exists. They desire not to suffer the effects of being run over by a car. 
Yeah, so in your example you gave kind of what Kant would call a hypothetical imperative, where it's very clear to us that we can give prescriptions like if you want to get from Los Angeles to San Diego you should travel south, or these types of things where if, therefore then, you ought to do this. Is there maybe another way to approach uh -huh. this is how do we get from a hypothetical ought to whatever a moral ought is? Hypothetical oughts are the only types of oughts that, that there are. There are no categorical oughts. Everything is given a set of desires. These particular actions will best fulfill those desires. So it's everything is has this if-then structure. But you can also apply that if-then structure to desires themselves. So um, I can say you ought not to rob a bank, that it's wrong. By that I mean that there are reasons for action not to rob a bank. But we can also ask, are those reasons for action themselves, those desires, any good? How do we answer that question? Well, we can apply the same method, the same if-then question, to whether or not we should have particular desires. And when we do that, when we evaluate desires according to their ability to fulfill or thwart other desires, that's when we're entering that subsection of value theory or values that has to do with morality. All value theory evaluates states of affairs by their relationship to desires. Morality, like I said, is a species of value in that it evaluates desires themselves according to their relationship to other desires. If a desire fulfills other desires, it's a desire that we have reasons to promote. If it thwarts other desires, it's a desire that we have reasons to inhibit to the degree that we can do so. Well, it seems clear to me what you're saying about, you know, if a desire thwarts lots of desires, then uh, every desire that it would thwart is almost like a reason for action to discourage that desire that thwarts all those desires? I would say more than almost. If a desire thwarts other desires, the desires being thwarted are reasons for actions to inhibit the desire in question. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, then, of course, there will be other desires that may be fulfilled by, say, robbing a bank, um, and I would imagine that those are taken into account. Uh, for example, the, the robber may fulfill certain desires for money if he gets away with it. So it, there mm -hmm. are reasons for action to, to discourage robbing a bank, and there are also at least a few reasons for action out there to promote this particular robbing of a bank. Correct? Yes, but notice that you're talking about the action of robbing a bank, whereas morality is concerned with the desires that are involved in robbing the bank. Um, Specifically, when we talk about robbing a bank, the, the moral interest here is in the, whether is in giving people an aversion to taking other people's property without their consent. We have a reason to promote that aversion because without it, any of our property can disappear at any moment. All of the interests we have in um, keeping what, it, what we have, in making plans, future plans on using what we have in preventing violence against people as, as they both claim the same piece of property. All of that gives us reasons to promote an aversion to taking property without consent. And the reason that robbing the bank is wrong is because robbing 
rubbing a bank is something that a person with that aversion would not do. So we take the sign of robbing a bank as evidence that that person has does not have the requisite aversion, and then we bring our moral tools to bear our condemnation and punishment to say that uh, people without that particular aversion are, well, we have reason to promote that aversion. So if you, we're going to promote it by bringing these tools to bear against such individuals. I see. So uh, what does desire utilitarianism have to say to those people who have personal reasons for action to oppose what the general public has reasons for action to promote? For example, the very wealthy may be in a position where uh, they have reason to promote things that the general public would have reasons for action to uh, discourage. So, on what grounds do the public, might the public say, hey, our reasons for action outweigh your reasons for action? If it's true, and, and, and let's assume it is, if the public has reasons for action to promote a particular attitude among the rich, then they, there's a whole list of actions that they can perform consistent with those reasons. That is, they can... Um, vote in people who will enact whatever legislation that is, that's consistent with those desires. They can bring um, uh, condemnation to, to bear against those particular individuals who are doing things that they have reason to condemn. Um, let's say the rich person is um, poisoning the, the air and the water, causing other people to die. We, because people generally have a great many reasons for action not to be have their air and water poisoned, that gives them reason to act in such a way as to inhibit the rich person from doing these things. But on the moral ground, more importantly, it gives the people a reason for action to promote an overall aversion to poisoning others as a way of making money. So that means that they have reason to bring these um, uh, Moral tools to bear, condemnation, punishment, um, criticism, ostracism, shame, all of the, all of these tools can be brought to bear on somebody who would, um, poison others as a way of making money. Okay. Uh, what does desire utilitarianism have to say about moral obligation? Obviously, desire utilitarianism doesn't hold that there is some kind of cosmic force that obliges us or some kind of cosmic rule maker that obliges us. So what does moral obligation mean in desire utilitarianism? Well, I, um, in thinking about obligation, uh, I, I pretty much took on a, a functional role. I asked, what, did, what does, when people use the term obligation, what are the set of institutions and beliefs and attitudes and claims tended to surround that type of claim? Uh, I mentioned earlier that one of the aspects of desire utilitarianism is that it can account for the three categories of moral action. Obligation, that is something that you ought to do. You have no um, moral permission to refuse. Um, Non-obligatory permissions, which are things you may or may not do. I can have steak for supper tonight or I can have stew. Um, I have a moral, I have a non-obligatory permission 
to have one or the other, or even to have nothing. That's that's where non-obligatory permissions come in. And then there's prohibitions, things that you ought not to do, like torture a child to death. Um, the way that desire utilitarianism handles those three categories is an obligation is an action that a person with good desires would not perform. Now, what that means is that if you see somebody perform that action, if people, then you know that that is a person who doesn't have the desires that you have reason to promote or does have desires you have reason to inhibit. So functionally, that means putting up a flag and calling in the community to bring their moral tools, their condemnation, their blame, their punishment to bear on that type of person. And if you look at the way the term obligation functions in a community as a moral concept, that's the way it functions, as a flag to the community to say, bring these moral tools to bear against such a person. And the same thing, uh, uh, an obligation, they bring the tools to bear against somebody who does not perform an action that a person with uh, good desires would perform. And a prohibition, they bring these moral tools to bear against people who perform an action that they ought not to have performed, or that a, that a person with good desires would not have performed. So it's it's an obligation to all other beings that have desires that are capable of being thwarted or for, or fulfilled. Then, huh? Um, I don't know why, but that doesn't sound exactly right. It's un, uh, I I have viewed it um, pretty much um, in in the functional terms that I described. To what an obligation is is. Um, if you do not perform the action, then the rest of society has reasons for action, a lot of reasons for action, to bring their moral tools to bear against you. Okay. So effectively, an, ob an obligation is an act that, uh, that if you perform it, it doesn't give society permission to bring its social tools to bear against you. Well, a lot of my readers are very concerned with the issues of whether desire utilitarianism is a subjective moral theory or objective or absolute or even necessary is a term that's been brought up. Uh, how do you like to think of those qualifiers? Uh, I have a question about necessary. I, I don't know. That one surprised me as well. It, I think there was some idea that it came from a theist. I think the idea is that moral values can only be objective or absolute or binding if they are necessary in the way that mathematical truths are necessary? Well, I would wonder how that person would describe scientific truths as being necessary. Um, desire utilitarianism, as I said, is, is descriptive and prescriptive. Uh, it is descriptive in that if, if a moral claim is true, then there is a relationship in the world that is being accurately described. Um, in that sense, it's objective. In a different sense, it's subjective in that one of the things that, that's a part of these descriptions is desires themselves. If desires don't exist, then values don't exist. Values exist as relationships between states of affairs and desires. Those states of those relationships either exist or they don't exist. Statements about them are objectively true or objectively false, but they are statements 
that are in part about desires. If the desires disappear or the desires change, then the values disappear or the values change. So it is at the same time both um, objective and subjective. And where I think a lot of moral debate gets derailed is over the idea that objective and subjective are mutually exclusive categories, that something can't be both. And it seems to me quite uh, clear that something can be both because beliefs and desires exist as entities in the real world. You can describe a person's beliefs and a poor person's desires. You're describing something real, even though you're describing mental states. And what about a term like absolute morality? Absolute tends to refer to unchanging under all, any and all circumstances. Um, and there, a person has to be concerned about the level at which you're talking about. In one sense, morality is, isn't absolute. I just described how it's the case that if desires change, then values change. Values will change. And even moral, what's a moral claim that can be true in one set of circumstances or at a particular time or a particular uh, um, uh, situation can be false in a different situation. And um, just to give an example of that, if you have a, a group of people, they're living in a desert where there's not much chance for disease and there's a shortage of water, you, there's a good reason to argue that they, uh, they have reason to argue for an aversion to bathing, for example. As it, as it's a waste of resources. That they, they don't need it. But that then you take that tribe and you move them into a different environment, a tropical environment where there's diseases all over the place and plenty of water. So now they no longer have a reason to promote an aversion to, to bathing. So so now you're uh, the where the first society would condemn and criticize um, somebody who wasted water in that way. The second would have reason to condemn and criticize somebody who didn't. In a sense, you can say that morality has changed. But if you just go one level above that, the level of how do we determine which types of actions are to be uh, uh, praised or condemned, that doesn't change across the two situations. In both cases, you're, you're promoting the desires that tend to fulfill other desires or inhibiting desires um, that tend to thwart other desires. That At that level, those types of claims are universal across all systems. It's just that when you apply the general rules mm -hmm. to a specific circumstance, sometimes you get different results. Well, I think my readers will want me to return for a moment to the meta-ethical grounds of desire utilitarianism. It's, it seems to me like you have a theory that is consistent and seems to explain a lot of moral terminology in terms of the three categories that you gave, uh, how we talk about obligation, how we talk about prescription, uh, how we talk about reasons for action. Is, why, uh, why choose desire utilitarianism over other theories that may describe uh, or have an account of how we use moral language, but think of them in a different way. For example, your theory is principally concerned with the fulfillment of desires. Uh, other moral theories might think that something else is more important. 
Um, well, if they can demonstrate that any other type of if they can demonstrate that any other reason for action exists in the real world, then they can build a theory around it. But anybody else or any competing theory is going to postulate an entity that doesn't exist. They're going to have to postulate intrinsic values or uh, some type of, of uh, deity giving command or an impartial observer or a social contract. They're all postulating things that uh, don't exist. They all have a premise that's false. The way that you decide among competing theories, moral theories, I would argue, is the same way you should decide among different scientific theories. Are the theor statements within that theory true? Can you point to things in the real world that match well, what the phrases or the propositions in the theory say. If there is, if, if there is another theory that can do that, that that can point to things in the real world and and describe them accurately, and then go with that theory. And what about moral theories that would frame the question another way? They would talk about moral values not in terms of reasons for action, but in terms of something else. Um, well, my, my immediate response to something like that is, if you're not talking about reasons for action, then why should I care? If you're not giving me a reason to do something, it, it, it's a contradiction for you to say I should do something, but there's no reason for me to do it. So you better be talking about reasons for action if you're going to start telling me what I should and shouldn't do. To say that we have reasons for action to, say, uh, promote or discourage something, what does that mean when there's a conflict between my personal reasons for action, like for example, say I have a personal reason for action to um, steal something because I really need it and uh, you know I, I just don't have the money to get it legitimately, um, versus the say moral reasons for action I might have to not steal because promoting stealing tends to degenerate a society and thwart all kinds of desires. So what do we do when we... Because the people have personal reasons um, for action to do things that are on desire utilitarianism immoral. Yeah, well, one of the uh, distinctions that uh, uh, is... It, it's very subtle and very easy to get confused. It's the distinction between reasons for action that exist and reasons for actions that you have. The reasons for action that you have are going to, to uh, determine your actions, and there, there's no way out of that. Um, your desires are linked to your muscles, and those desires are the ones that are going to control your actions. But your desires, the desires that you have, the reasons for actions that you have, is just an infinitesimal subset of the reasons for action that exist. The category reasons for actions that exist includes everybody else's desires. And that relates to your desires and that they have reason, those re reasons for action that exist are reasons for action for promoting or inhibiting certain desires within you. So when we talk about things being um, obligatory or prohibited, when we, uh, you're thinking about taking the money, whether you will or will not depends on whether or not taking the money will fulfill your desires. But the moral question is, are those desires, desires that people out there, reasons for actions that exist, do those reasons for action recommend the desires that are causing you to take the money? 
And if the answer is no, if they have reason to inhibit that desire, then even though you may actually take the money, the claim is can, can be made that you're doing something wrong. You're doing something that, according to reasons for action that exist, your uh, those reasons for actions are reasons for condemning the desires that are causing you to take the money. Well, here we're getting into your moral calculus. How do we determine whether a an action or a desire or a law is good or bad? Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to have have to divide that question into two parts. Um, I said that an action is an action that a person with good desires would perform, a, a, a right action. A good law is a law that a person with good desires would vote for. So you determine the value of institutions or laws or actions, any of those things, by asking whether a person with good desires would do them. And then the next question is, how do you tell if something is a good desire? You tell that it's a good desire by determining if the desire generally, if it was spread generally throughout the community, is a desire that would tend to fulfill other desires. Um, so, for example, a desire for chari- a desire to be charitable, a desire to help those people in need, is a desire that tends to fulfill other desires. And an act of charity can then be praised on the ground that it is the action that a person with good desires, a desire to help those, those in need, would perform. What does your justification for saying be most desires and the strongest desires, and what does that mean? Okay. Remember what I said earlier that statements about relationships between states of affairs and desires are both at the same time descriptive and prescriptive. The state that a desire is one that um, fulfills other desires is the state that there are reasons for action out there for promoting that desire, that those relationships are both descriptive and prescriptive, those relationships exist, they're real, um, and they are, or at least if the person has their their facts right, their beliefs right, they are reasons to act, to bring the, the, the moral tools to bear, either for promoting a particular set of desires or against it. But what's the, what's the more and stronger, like, especially the stronger, how does that factor in? Well, that that goes into the nature of uh, desire. It seems to be the case, um, uh, according to belief desire theory, that desires come in various strengths. There are some things that we want a lot um, and some things that uh, we don't care about that much. So, for example, if I had to choose between having my hand placed on a uh, hot fire or having a, a um, small splinter stuck at the t- tip of my finger, um, my aversion to the pain that would be caused by the fire is greater than or stronger than my aversion to whatever sensations would come from having my my uh, finger stuck with a needle. So um, desires come in strengths. However, it's possible for a lot of small, smaller desires or smaller interests to outweigh a... Um, a stronger desire. So, for example, an alcoholic might have a strong desire to drink. Uh, one desire, very strong, tends to override other desires. There's no one other desire that might be strong enough to outweigh the desire for drink. 
but combined all of the different parts of his life that are affected by that, all of those desires combined might outweigh the desire to drink. And how would we how would we measure desires, or are we just kind of you know the best we can do right now is estimate until we have a better until neuroscientists have a better understanding of what desire is and and how to measure it more precisely? Well, in a sense, that's the best we can do in any science. So, for example, you want to know the weight of something. Um, no matter what tool you use, there's always going to be an error bar of some size. And hopefully over time, with advanced technology, we can get better and better and more precise. But we're never going to have absolute precision down to the uh, two billionth decimal place or even beyond. I mean, effectively, you need precision down to the infinite decimal place, and that's not possible. Um, so we do have, currently, we do have some capacity to tell the difference between different values. So if you um, if you had to choose between um, a person getting a scrape on their hand in Los Angeles or the city of New York being blown to bits in a, a series of nuclear explosions, we can do a pretty good job of telling which is worse, um, that, that one is worse than the other. Now, it is the case that, um, as in everything, it's possible that there will, there's cases where it's going to be harder to determine. And hopefully over time we will get we will get better at this and there will be fewer things where it's harder to determine. And but ultimately that takes evidence. That takes a lot of study. Um determining what the effects of drug laws are. And what is the effect of making uh uh drugs or prostitution illegal? For for the most part we don't have all all of the facts that we need just yet. But yeah, we estimate. We don't have precise tools at this point. And part of the reason we don't have precise tools is because we haven't known what to, what to look for. And one of the things people have been trying to measure for 2,000 years is um, intrinsic value. They've treated it as if it was a real entity, and it's not. And you can't measure something that doesn't exist. Um, try to measure... God's approval or disapproval when God doesn't exist. God is simply an invention of different people who are effectively assigning their own preferences to God, and those preferences differ from individual to individual, from um, inventor of God, among different inventors of God. So once we get the idea that, okay, now here's what we're looking at, we're looking at the strength of desires, now we've... uh, now we can start to study them and start to figure out some of these things. We've made progress if we're measuring something that exists, uh, even if our error bars are big right now. Right. I and mean, we have to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, think of temperature. Uh, 3,000 years ago, they didn't have thermometers, but they could tell the difference between what was hot and what was cold. Then, then they invented more precise. They started to invent thermometers. They found out that, well, look, the volume of water is dependent on temperature, so if we take this volume of water and we give it the value of 100 and this volume of water and we give it a, a value of zero, um, now we have now we can assign numbers to these two temperatures. And then we kind of split it in half and, and make all sorts of little tick marks on our, our little instrument, and now we can assign numbers to it. But even before we did that, we could tell the difference between hot and cold. And even after we did that, there were still cases where we couldn't tell if two things were of a different temperature. And there are some things we simply still could not measure temperature of because we couldn't get a thermometer into it. Um, until we've, And over time, we've 
acquired more and more sophisticated tools. Now, I would argue that we actually do have some very sophisticated tools when it comes to measuring relationships uh, among desires. And those are the tools that economists use to figure out what's called willingness to pay, which involves some really sophisticated calculus uh, in looking at, uh, you take, you observe a group of people under certain circumstances and you find out under what circumstances they choose one option and what circumstances they choose another. You look at the various trade-offs, you start to evaluate at what, under what conditions will they switch from A to B, will their choices switch. And the economists can come up with some fairly sophisticated analysis of what actually has value to people according to what, what choices they make. Yeah, and they can actually put uh, ratios and, and actual numbers on uh, the strength of people's desires, it appears. Right, and they do it pretty much the same way that, uh, that I described with the invention of the uh, Thermometer. With the invention of thermometer, I said that this volume of water is 100 degrees. That volume of water will assign the value of zero and then um, make tick marks in between. The economists, when they do willingness to pay estimates, do the same thing. We'll take this value, we'll assign it a value of 10, we'll take that value, we'll assign it a value of zero, and then through our um, observations, we'll discover when people switch from one to another, and that will be our tick marks in the middle. It's pretty much the same type of system. They, they can use that, and they can say, well, it looks like this has the value of 6.6, .6 because um, when people get six of these things, this is when they'll switch. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, we've been talking mostly on the level of theory, although, thankfully, you've avoided S and P and all that. That works better in writing, I think. Um, I wonder, just on a level of daily conversation, let's say that uh, you're too, you know, a, a desire utilitarian is talking to somebody else, and the desire utilitarianism says, uh, or excuse me, the desire utilitarian says uh, you should not, um, you should not hit that person with a club. And the person who wants to hit somebody with a club says, why? What does the desire utilitarian say? Um, well, okay, you're talking about somebody who has a club who's going to hit somebody. At that point, the only types of appeals that are going to make sense or that are going to have any effect are appeals to the desires that that person already has. You can't. I mean, you can tell him that that this isn't a good desire, but it, that desire is there, and that is the desire that's going to influence his actions. Um, so at that point, you're simply, if it gets to that point, you're simply talking about relationships between swinging the club and his current desire. So pretty much, the only thing you can say there is to point out that. Uh, it, desires of his are going to be thwarted in some way in the future, that he's going to be arrested and thrown in jail or people are going to to do bad things to him. Um, or you can, at that point, actually threaten him. If you swing that club, I will shoot you. That, that should have an effect, in many cases, on his current desires. The moral question is, how do we get that to that place to start with? The best situation is that we don't get to the place where that guy is wants to swing the club by 
throughout that person's uh, life up to this point, uh, using condemnation to give him an aversion to swinging a club, and then the situation that you're describing doesn't come up. And that's what the desire of utilitarianism says morality is about. It's not about convincing that person not to switch, not to swing the club at that time, but it's involved with creating people who don't want to swing clubs. So let's say that we are talking to a very philosophical person, and this philosophical person doesn't have any particular desires to uh, torture someone, but they've, they've got somebody chained up, and they're just going to torture somebody for the heck of it, and they ask you, you know, why should I not torture this person? And they mean very philosophically, why should I not torture this person? In that case, what does the desire utilitarian say? Well, one thing the desire utilitarian would say is that nobody ever does anything just for the heck of it. That's to say that they do something for no reason. If there's no reason, then there's no action. There has to be a reason in there somewhere. Um, now, so let's just switch your story a little bit. We've got our, our philosophical potential torturer here who says, I am only interested in one thing, and that is whether or not torturing this person is wrong. That's, that's the only desire, at least for the sake of our conversation, that I have. If you can convince me that it's wrong, I won't torture them. If you can't convince me, then I'm going to go, okay, if you can't convince me, I won't torture. If you can't convince me, then I'm going to go ahead and torture this person. So go ahead, give me your best shot. Can you convince me that torturing this person is wrong? Then the desire utilitarianism, the desire utilitarian will say, speaking as a desire utilitarian, okay, in order to say that torturing that person is wrong, I'm, I'm going to say that it's that thing which a person with good desires would not do. What's a good desire? It's a good desire that people generally have reason to inhibit. People generally have great many and strong reasons to inhibit a desire to torture and to create an aversion to torturing because they don't want to be tortured and they don't want the people that they care about to be tortured and they don't want the person that you're about to torture to be tortured. So they have this reason to promote this aversion to torture. This aversion to torture is an aversion that a person with good desires would have. So a person with good desires would not torture that person. That is the same thing as saying that torturing that person is wrong or morally prohibited. So there's my, there's my proof. Now go away. Very interesting. Well, I think we should probably clarify a few things about desire utilitarianism. You speak of how morality is concerned with malleable desires. What do you mean by that, and how does that come into play in making a decision as to whether something is moral or not moral? Uh, well, malleable desires are desires that can be molded by interaction with the environment. Um, because it simply makes no sense to try to change something that can't be changed. If you're going to bring social or moral tools to bear on modifying a desire, then it, it just has to be a desire that can be modified by the use of those tools. Um, it's, it doesn't do any good to take a pick against a rock that can't be broken up by a pick. This is a practical theory. Like I said, there are only hypothetical imperatives. If you want to do, if you want to accomplish X, you do A. If A can't help you accomplish X, then it's simply false to say do A in order to accomplish X. 
you have to deal with desires that can be changed um, for um, for your actions to make any sense. Now, there is, related to this, there is a distinction between morality and law here. Morality, according to desire utilitarianism, has to do with changing people's desires. Um, and that has, to, that has to do with the, the malleable desires because only malleable desires can be changed. But on the side of law, law has to do with um, actions that affect the desires that already exist. I am going to imprison you if you perform this action. I'm not trying to, to modify your desires in any way. I'm taking your desires as is. I'm assuming, I think it's a fairly rational assumption, that for the vast majority of people, they can do a, they can't do as good a job fulfilling their desires if they're in prison as they can if they're free and out of prison. So by threatening to put them in prison, I am giving them a reason not to perform a particular action. At the level of law, I'm not concerned with modifying their desires. At the level of morality, I am. At the level of law, I'm concerned with using their current desires against them or using their current desires to modify their actions. Um, I wonder in terms of malleable desires, what if we come to the point where we can basically create or inhibit desires with total control because our neuroscience has developed so greatly? Is there a reason to inhibit the uh, the desire to rape as opposed to inhibit the aversion to rape? Um, with respect to rape in specific, uh, no, that, that would be a contradiction. Um, because, well, we need the desire for... Uh, the wrongness of rape has to do with the interest in consent. In order to make sure... Uh, we have a good reason to promote an aversion to non-consensual acts. That is, if a person, if an action fulfills or a state of affairs fulfills the desires of an individual, they'll agree to it voluntarily as long as they don't have false beliefs. So, the, And the person who is best informed and least corrupt agent for determining if a state of affairs fulfills a person's desires is that person themselves. I know what I want better than anybody else does. I can still make mistakes, by the way. But still, I've got the best information on what states of affairs will fulfill my desires. And also, I'm the least corruptible agent. It's very difficult for me to um, decide to, to um, sacrifice my own interests for what? My own interests? So... I am the least corruptible agent with the best information. So if somebody out there wants to know what would fulfill, best fulfill my desires, the best person to get a hold of to get to get the right answer is me. And that's why we need, or that's why morality calls for an aversion to non-consensual action. It's basically a desire to get the best information on what fulfills desires from the most informed, least corruptible agents. And... Rape will always be, by definition, of a, a violation of the need for uh, the, value, the moral value of consent. So rape will always be something that a person with good desires would not perform. A person with good desires will always have this aversion to non-consensual actions. 
So a person with good desires will never commit rape. So let's change the situation a little bit. Let's say we could either, let's say we get to the point where we can control or inhibit all desires because we have such power over the brain, and we could, we have a choice between uh, diminishing the desire to slap random people in the face, or we have uh, the ability to simply diminish the aversion to being slapped in the face by a stranger. Uh, how would we choose which knob to turn, which direction? Um, okay, let's, let's say with, with our, our perfected uh, neurosurgery, we can cause a slap in the, play, in the face to be pleasurable. Now we've given away every reason to avoid a slap in the face. So the, the desire to slap other people in the face is no longer uh, a bad desire. It doesn't afford any desires. In fact, it fulfills the desire because we'll make being slapped in the face a pleasant experience with our, our little um, neurosurgical tools that we now have. It seems like we could actually uh, both increase the desire to slap people in the face and increase the um, pleasurability of being slapped in the face, uh, and that would create a whole bunch of desires and fulfill them at the same time. Uh, yeah, but remember, desire, <coughs> desire fulfillment itself doesn't have any intrinsic value. There's no reason to go around creating more desire fulfillment. Um, a desire creates a value for that which is desired, but um, the fact that, some, that th this relationship exists has zero value. So we don't need to go around increasing desire fulfillment. That's not our goal. Um, in order to evaluate how we're going to use these tools, we have to see what other desires would be fulfilled by the, these tools in this particular way. Now, if there is out there a desire to increase desire fulfillment, then then what you say uh, would have value relative to that desire. There's all sorts of other desires. So, for example, let's, we could increase the strength of de these desires to such a degree that people are no longer um, gathering food. They're starving to death. Um, they're no longer caring for their children. If we did that, then we are creating desires that tend to thwart other desires. Yeah, that makes sense. And if, if we're going to increase desires other than, uh, I can think of a lot of desires to, to put our little neurosurgical tools to work on other than the, promoting the desire to slap other people in the face, which is the desire to acquire knowledge, um, the desire to help others, the desire um, to maintain physical fitness. Uh, those are desires that actually fulfill other desires. So those are desires that we have reason to use our neurosurgical tools to promote. I think we've covered a, a, this before, but I'd, I'd like to read one question that was posted. Uh, he who cuts down asked, or he said, I'm not seeing how one can make the jump from I have desire X and you have desire Y to desire X is preferable to desire Y due to its capacity to fulfill more de desires than it thwarts. Uh, is that really what you're saying? Are you saying that um, desires that tend to fulfill other desires are preferable to desires that tend to thwart other desires? 
Well, that pretty much is what I'm saying, because the word preferable means it simply means fulfills more and stronger desires. Okay, I have desire X, you have desire Y, they're in conflict. Um, to say that my desire X fulfills other desires means that those other people out there, the, the crowd of 100 people that surround us, they all have reason to promote my desire and inhibit yours. Um, assuming that, that yours thwarts the same desires that mine fulfills. So they, you know, so they have reason, those hundred people, have reason to bring their moral tools to bear in order to promote or strengthen my desire and to inhibit yours. And if they're successful, if they're completely successful, then they inhibit your desire to the point that it doesn't exist. And now I get to act as I, as I wish, fulfill their desires. They get desi their desires fulfilled, but your desires aren't aborted as long as the moral project is, is successful because you no longer have a desire for why. Again, assuming the moral project is successful. Um, some questions that I've gotten are coming from people who are error theorists, and so they they think that um, moral claims are claims about objective fact, but as it so happens, all such claims are false because they refer to things that don't exist, uh, namely moral values. And so what would you say to an error theorist who just thinks that uh, moral claims are false because they just there's no referent? Okay, let's go to the, the chief moral theorist, which is J.L. Mackey who happens to be perhaps my second favorite philosopher behind David Hume. Um, what Mackey said was that all moral claims, if we look at moral language, the way I described earlier, generally how do people use the term, what theory best fits how the terms are used. Mackey argued that moral terms contain a claim of what he called objective intrinsic prescriptivity. Now, objective intrinsic prescriptivity doesn't exist. All moral claims say that they do. It does exist, so all moral claims are false. Um, and as far as that goes, I'm in, or I can be in complete agreement with Mackey. Um, uh, I, do, I do agree that a, a vast majority of moral claims have to do with our, our claims about intrinsic prescriptivity. Um, and they're false. A lot of moral claims have to do with claims about God, and they're false. Um, so, um, however, if you read Mackey, Mackey, I, I keep, one of the um, uh, terms or arguments I continually go back to has to do with the meaning of the term Adam. The the term Adam changed its meaning over history. It originally meant a thing without parts. A tome meant in, to the ancient Greeks without parts. Now it no longer means that. So there was a time when chemists were talking about hydrogen and oxygen atoms, meaning hydrogen and oxygen things without parts. But they were wrong. You bring up they started to come up with um, observations that can only be explained if we uh, assumed that these uh, smallest pieces of oxygen and hydrogen actually did have parts. Of course, the thing without parts can't have parts. 
So now they have now they had a problem. Uh, error theory comes along and says, okay, the whole without part stuff, that's false. We have to drop that. They kept the term atom. They dropped the error part, the without the part that was wrong, the part uh, that that part of the definition that said that atoms didn't have parts, gave atoms parts, and they continued with chemistry. Now, uh, the last I checked, chemistry was a perfectly objective science, or uh, as a, about as objective as any science can be. Even though some, there was an error, error in the original definition of the term atom. Like I said, I get that from Mackey, because Mackey said the same thing about morality. Mackey's book, Invent Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong, is where he presents this error theory. But then the second half of his book is just, is devoted to moral claims about abortion and euthanasia and a whole mess of other things. So what does he do? In the middle of the book, right at the transi transition between the two sections, he brings up this fact of the word Adam. And he says, even though moral, all moral claims are false, we have the option of dropping out that part that is false, keeping what remains, and using that to go forward and now make true value claims. We're just going to drop the part about intrinsic prescriptivity. And if you do that, I argue, if you follow Mackey's recipe, drop out the part about intrinsic prescriptivity, keep what remains and move forward, you can make true value claims and they will be desired utilitarian claims. So I have I have nothing against the, the error theorist, but it's it's not the end of the conversation. It wasn't the end of the conversation with chemistry, and it's not the end of the conversation in ethics. And Mackey knew that. Um, actually, if uh, you go to my website and, and my uh, atheist ethicist blog there and look look up Mackey, I have actually a series of uh, a set of quotes from Mackey where he makes the claim that um, here are here's a way that that moral claims can be objective, but that's not what we're talking about yet. If we organize our moral claims this way, they're objectively true. Um, but I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about intrinsic prescriptivity. He makes those types of claims all over his book. And then he starts to make objectively true moral claims towards the end. Well, a lot of my readers are also non-cognitivists in that they just don't think that moral claims make any make any factual have any factual content or are even intended to have factual content what would your response to them be well i think the, the easiest way to respond to them is to say okay these these things that you want to call moral claims that don't have any factual content they don't have any factual content drop them forget about them they're not important let's move on to these things that do have factual content desires exist Relationships between states and states of affairs and desires exist. Those statements have to have factual content. You don't want to call them morality. Don't. I don't care. They're still real. There are reasons for action that exist for promoting certain desires and prohibiting other desires. Those statements have lots of factual content and they're true. Again, if you don't want to call them morality, don't. They're just as true, even no matter what you call them. So you know. I, I get to keep everything I want, even with the air theorists and the nihilists and everything. 
the things that I am that I'm talking about, these relationships between states of affairs and malleable desires, and the ability to use tools such as praise and condemnation to promote them, and the actions that a person with good desires would or would not perform, all of those things are, are still real. No matter what they want to do with the term morality, the things I'm talking about are real, even if you want to give them a different name. And it sounds like you would give a very similar response to those people who think that moral terms are so confused because they've been used in so many different languages, as you call them, or so many different ways by so many different cultures that that really there's just it makes no sense to talk about morality. I think where they're coming from is kind of where a lot of atheists come from when they talk about how this concept of God makes no sense because it's been used in so many different ways and with such vague language um, that it makes no sense to talk about God. Not that it's false, but that it is not capable of being true or false because it doesn't even make sense uh, and it's so confused. Uh, what would your response to that be? Well, those people are raising a practical concern. They're saying that uh, because of all of this confusion that's associated with moral terms, that there's no way to bring that term into a conversation without confusing a bunch of people. So the best thing to do is to invent a whole new, a whole different set of terms and bring those in instead, free of all of this confusion. Um, I don't think that moral terms are as confused as they think because we do get a great deal of mileage out of our moral institutions. Um, they do they do a great deal of work, and I think dropping moral terms is also a way of generating confusion. It's it, because a lot of people are going to interpret the idea of dropping moral terms as dropping morality, which means no now we're no longer going to condemn the Nazi or the rapist or the uh, any of those types of people, and that's not going to help. That's just going to add to the confusion. It's not going to uh, resolve it. And it takes a great deal of effort to get a whole society wrapped around a new set of terms. I mean, you're going to have to hire a PR group and spend a lot of money to get your new set of terms actually adopted in the community. And even then, you're going to meet a lot of resistance, a lot of people with a lot of money who are going to resist it. Um, simply because they already have an investment in some other system, which is part of the reason why moral concepts are so confused now is because of the investments that people have to muddy the waters. Those reasons for muddying the waters will still exist, and investment in muddying the waters will still be going on, no matter how much you want to spend on your uh, your PR campaign to introduce a new set of terms. Um, ultimately, I think, as I said, this is a practical issue. I think practical, uh, in terms of practical reasoning, the best thing to do is to continue to use the terms that uh, that exist, and but to eliminate the errors, the references to reasons for actions that don't exist, um, intrinsic values, divine commands, um, social contracts, impartial observers, all of that stuff, and um, and move on from there. And that's that's effectively what my blog is all yeah, about. Yeah, I think that's a, a good response to give to 
someone who says that desire utilitarianism might be a true theory, but it's you know it can't be about morality or it can't be about objective morality or whatever. Um, whether or not you want to use the term morality, it still makes a lot of sense to use the term morality because it it fits with a lot of our moral language. Um, it's a lot of work to just invent new terms, and it refers to things that actually exist, unlike a lot of other moral uh, theories. Is that kind of where you're coming from? Yeah. Um, we can go back to the analogy with, uh, uh, with, with the atom. Um, chemists, the assumption was that uh, atoms had no parts. Now, observations start to suggest that atoms do have parts. If we start talking about atoms as things having parts, that's going to confuse a lot of people because we've told them that atoms don't have parts, and now we're saying they do have parts. Something that doesn't have parts can't have parts at the same time. Um, but they just plowed ahead, changed the definition of the term, plowed ahead, and, and, and now we don't even think about uh, atoms not having parts. In fact, you actually have to, to tell somebody that once upon a time the word atom had this, dif this different definition. And if you've, uh, the best thing to do is with respect to, to morality, which was Mackey's system or, or method, and which I agree with, is to do the same thing with morality. Okay, the people used the terms in all of these wrong ways in the past. We drop those. We keep what refers to the things that are real. And we move on, and hopefully in a hundred or a thousand years from now, people have forgotten about all of those bad those false claims that were once actually written into the very meaning of moral terms in some circles. Well, uh, to wrap up, I'd like to open a can of worms that probably can't be shut, uh, and that is the relation of, uh, of animals and their desires to ethical considerations. It, it seems clear that a lot of animals have desires, and so I, I can't imagine a reason to exclude them from moral calculus. How do we how do we deal with those issues? Yeah, actually, animals are in a, a a difficult situation. They have reasons for action that exist, but they don't have the capacity to judge which of the set of available actions is the best for them. So actually, they've got some very good reason to condemn humans for the way humans treat animals, but they don't know, they can't put enough of it together to actually act so as to condemn humans. Um, and you're right, that opens a can of worms. That uh, creates some interesting moral issues. Um, there are, so here we have desires, reasons for actions that exist that the agents themselves can't express. They, they can't turn it into the most rational action available for them. They don't have uh, the mental capacity to do that. And by the way, and, and this actually is where the uh, it's going to make some headway here. That's also true of humans. Even though I mean, I have a set of desires. Do I know the best? the absolute best actions for me to perform at this particular time to bring about the most and strongest fulfillment of that desire, those desires. I don't. Neither do you. Neither does anybody else. We're not in as bad a situation as the animals are, at least most of us aren't. 
Um, but we're still in a similar situation. Now, because of that, we have reasons to promote desires in others to take these fact, these things into consideration. We have reasons to promote in others a, an aversion to exploiting those people who can't figure out what's going on for themselves. Children, mentally infirm, those types. But if we're promoting that desire in others, we also have a reason to promote in, in others an aversion to taking advantage of animals. We have reasons, or there are reasons for action that exist to promote uh, helping animals? Both of them is true. Humans have have reasons to promote an aversion to exploiting people who can't take care of their own interests. But animals also have reasons for us to do this. Unfortunately, animals lack the ability to act on those reasons in a way that will actually cause us to do this. The only reasons that exist that are actually going to cause us to behave differently are the reasons that we have. And unfortunately, there are reasons for action that exist out there, um, and and they can't act on them. They can't affect us. Yeah. What does that? What kind of quandary does that put the the human in who wants to be moral and who wants to promote desires that tend to fulfill the desires that exist, including the desires of animals? Uh, how does that suggest that we might change uh, the way that we live as humans in relation to animals? Actually, part of the way you you phrased that uh, um, brought up and included an assumption that might be false. You're talking about a person who wants to wants to be moral, and he wants to consider the desires of animals. But the very question is, what's the relationship of considering the desires of animals to morality? That's the question that needs to be answered. It's not uh, uh, an answer to simply be assumed into the equation. It's that's the question that needs to be figured out. Morally, I, I want to be. I want to behave morally. So, in my desire to behave morally, what attitude should I drop, adopt towards animals? I believe an argument can be made that. Um, people generally have, even if, it's, if we limit it to humans, people generally have reason to promote an aversion to thwarting the desires of others, period, including animals, including those who can't take care of themselves, perhaps even especially those who can't take care of themselves. So we have a reason to promote an aversion to doing harm to animals. Um, the animals also have a reason to promote that in us, but both sets of desires point in the same direction. So the person who wants to be moral, really all he all he needs to know is that there are reasons to promote an aversion to thwarting the desires of those who can't take care of themselves. Well, I must say I also have very strong desires for bacon, and that's going to conflict with uh, some desires that exist. Um, not necessarily. I have a, an article on... Uh, um, that's what I call the predator problem. And it may be that uh, the desire for bacon is actually not such a bad desire. or It doesn't have to be such a bad desire. Um, there's a... Well, one of the things to, to note is that the best cared for animals in the world 
are the ones that we eat. Animals that live in the wild are subject to all sorts of disease, predation, accidents without being treated, suffer all sorts of, of pains and discomforts from uh, uh, from birth birth to death. Most animals, particularly, I mean, think about it, most predators die because they starve to death. Because they can know that as their body gets old, they can't hunt as well, so they don't get as much food and they starve to death. So it may not be the case that the desire for bacon is such a bad thing. It may be a desire that is actually helping to fulfill the desires of particular animals. Now, this that argument doesn't work for factory farming, where animals are forced to endure a great deal of suffering simply to produce the products that people desire. So maybe it would be good to find a way to make lots, uh, even more animals, our pets that we take care of and treat and keep from injury and provide food for and all that kind of stuff, and then when they die, there's no particular reason to not eat their meat? Well, other than but when they get uh, older, the meat gets less flavorful. <laughs> anyway, I don't know what the answer, answer to those questions are. The The issue of animal rights is, is actually one area where... Um, there's some questions, and I can't say that, oh, definitely desire utilitarianism says do X. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there's so much to weigh in there. It's hard, it's hard for any of us to do the moral calculus of, of all the desires that exist in the, in the world. Right, and I actually consider that to be one of the, the merits of desire utilitarianism. And a lot of people, when they look for a moral theory, they say, they look as if they say they what they want is I want a theory that will give me all of the right answers without thinking about them. Well, yeah, that would be nice, but is that the way the world really is? Desire utilitarianism says that there are hard questions out there. There are questions that, that we are going to have to put some investment into doing some research, and the only people who are wrong are the people who say I know what the right answer is. One example, for example, is, is drug laws. Should we be throwing people in, in jail for possessing or uh, engaging in transactions or for using particular types of drugs? There is a lot of relevant research out there. And the people that, who I have the least respect for are the people who have done none of the research, but they claim to know what the law should be. My view on, I mean, if you look at my blog, you won't, you won't find an article on uh, uh, drug laws, because I don't know what the answer is. I can evaluate some of the arguments and say this argument works and that argument doesn't work. Right. In in your view, morality is a, a massive research project that we we don't know the answers to uh, maybe even the majority of moral questions because we haven't collected the data yet. Yeah. In some cases, we don't even know what the questions are. But the theory does allow for moral progress because we get better over time. We get more answers over time. We figure things out. Something that we currently think is immoral, we may discover is moral, or the other way around, um, as, as we learn more. So um, we can get better over time, but it's not going to be a matter of sitting there in your comfy chair and, and thinking up some 
um, particular situation and say and thinking, poof, now I know what what the moral right answer is. That's not how you answer moral questions. You answer moral questions by opening books and doing research and and looking at papers in the journal of psychology and and sociology and economics and and actually putting a lot of sweat into it. Then you can answer the moral questions. There's a place for moral experts in desire in desire utilitarian theory. There, there is a case where um, a person can actually pick a moral issue and decide to become an expert in that issue. And the layman out there, they, they simply don't, don't know what the answer is. They don't have the tools that they need to figure out what the answer is. Well, I think this brings up just one more question I would like to ask you. I've posted a couple of articles on my blog that attack the idea of comparing moral theories by how well they fit our moral feelings or even our moral intuitions. Uh, it seems like a lot of moral philosophers, when I read them, they're, they're weighing the various moral theories based on whether or not they conform to our feelings about whether rape is wrong or whether charity is good or whatever. The, the central question seems to be, does this fit with how we feel about morality? And I've been arguing that there's no reason to do that. It, it doesn't. We don't have any reason to believe that we've evolved a moral sixth sense that can directly apprehend otherwise undetectable moral properties or anything like that. And, and I don't think I've gotten a single person on my blog who has agreed with me on that. Um, what are your thoughts on that subject? Well, well, people typically don't write something except to say that they disagree. But... Uh, uh, no, there's absolutely no reason to believe that, that we have a moral sense. How would that have come about? How would that have evolved? Um, if we have a sense of anything, that sense is going to be hijacked by evolution, and it's going to become a sense of that which promotes our survival. And there is absolutely no reason to believe that that which promotes our survival and that which is wrong or that which is right are the same thing, not unless you assert some type of intrinsic value claim that for some reason human survival is intrinsically is intrinsically valuable. And you're not going to get anywhere with that because intrinsic value is one of those mysterious entities we have no reason to believe in. Um, the only thing what our moral sense is, our, our moral sense is the desires that we have. And I think that's what makes moral sense theory so popular is because, hey, if I can if I can answer a moral question by closing my eyes and imagining the situation and then picking an option, the only thing I'm doing is I'm picking the option that I like. And, you know, that's a great theory. I always get to do what I like. It's a very tempting way to approach approach morality. But the fact that it's a, uh, a tempting way to approach morality, is it correct? Is there any basis, any reason to believe that there are entities, that there are moral properties out there and we have the capacity to sense them. Um, how, how do you make sense of that metaphysically? What would those properties consist of? And how does this sense organ function? What actually makes sense of that phenomena is there are things that you like and don't like. And your desires have been molded by society who have reasons to promote certain desires and certain inhibitions in you 
and and me and the rest of us. So what you the only thing you're doing is you're appealing to your own desires. However, what gives moral sense theories a smidgen of credibility is you're appealing to desires that have themselves been molded by society to be desires that tend to promote other desires. But that's the closest you can get. And from there, the question is, are, is society promoting the desires that they really have reason to promote, or did they make some mistakes along the way and they're promoting desires they should really have no reason to promote? Yeah, are we shooting ourselves in the foot all the time because we have bad information or our uh, incorrect thinking processes. Mm -hmm. Well, Alonzo, there are hundreds of topics that I would love to talk to you about, but we just can't do that. Are there certain things that you would like to say in closing that maybe we didn't have a time to cover or that you want to emphasize? Well, there happen to be just as many things that I would probably also like to say in closing. Um, <laughs> Well, the, the best place to, to get to what I would say in closing, the various issues, that million topics that I would probably uh, want to mention is that they're up at my, at my blog, atheistethicist.blogspot.com. And that's where I, I post my opinions on issues ranging from moral philosophy to specific um, items in the news. Very good, yeah. And I've I've been following your blog for a while now, and there's always really substantive stuff there. So I definitely recommend that people visit your blog and and read it. Um, and you're very clear in, in the way that you write about things as well, and very short, which is helpful. Well, I shortened it up. I used I, I adopted the new set of rules about uh, three or four months ago. If you go back beyond that, you're going to get things that are a lot longer. Well, thank you very much, Alonzo, for joining me to answer some of the questions. I'm sure I'll get a lot more questions now, and I look forward to what else you have to say about Desire Utilitarianism on your blog. Okay, you know where to find me. Well, that's my interview with Alonzo Fife. Feel free to visit commonsenseatheism.com to view the show notes, which include links to Alonzo's website and his book. Thanks for listening.